Hello, I am Isabel Trick, an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council, and this is the Global Month Ahead podcast series. At the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across Global Council to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments that are taking place in the months ahead. You can expect us to focus on issues with broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will make sure that you know more than your friends and your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. For today's edition, we are going to focus on the IMF and World Bank Spring Meetings, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement in the context of the recently agreed Windsor Framework, and an election in Bulgaria, where voters are heading to the polls for the fifth time in two years. For our first segment of the day, I have my colleague Thomas Grotowski with me. Thomas Grotowski is the Senior Practice Director of the Global Macro Team, and he is here today to talk to me about the IMF and World Bank Spring Meetings. Um, they're going to take place in Washington, D.C., starting on the 10th of April. And they're an opportunity to bring together lots of important people. We're talking finance ministers, development ministers, central bank governors and other officials, but also private sector representatives. The backdrop of this meeting is a particularly interesting one this time around because we've just had some very significant financial sector turmoil. We've had the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Then we've had trouble at Credit Suisse. And all of this has raised fears about a global financial crisis 2.0. So I would assume financial stability is going to be one of the key concerns on the agenda this year. Would you agree with that, Thomas? Peter, thanks for having me. Perhaps for those who haven't been at the spring meetings yet, the meetings are basically a full week of events and meetings where the IMF and World Bank both release some of the flagship reports and the governors of both institutions also meet. But perhaps the other key event is also the meeting of the G20 finances and governor and central bank governors, which is this year chaired by India. But back to your question. Of course, I agree. After two months with more uplifting economic data earlier this year, there were perhaps some signs that inflation is easing in the United States and Europe. The recent financial turmoil has really reminded us of the severe risks to the global economic outlook. I think as such, it was clear to everyone that financial tightening at a rapid pace after 15 years of near zero interest rates would really create stress. But the question is really how manageable and impactful it will be to clean up the parts of the financial system that are breaking. That is now much higher than in 2008, but the world has also put in place measures to perhaps better regulate banks in order to avoid massive risk-taking. How successful these attempts will be remains to be seen. But of course, it is this financial turmoil against the backdrop of an already exceptionally low growth outlook that is really interesting to see at this year's meeting. And I'm very curious to see the messages that the IMF and World Bank will put out when especially the IMF publishes its economic outlook and financial stability report. Yeah, I imagine those are going to be some reports to keep our eyes on. I like your summary here of the events that we've seen. Just we started the year off with a hint of optimism after we did have some of this more optimistic, uplifting economic data, but then immediately we're pushed back into a moment of pessimism here. But maybe it might not be quite as pessimistic as all that. Let's see what tone both institutions will take. And I guess all of that is really giving them a lot to talk about. 
But given how many people this brings together, these meetings, what do you think are some of the key dividing lines in the big issues they're going to be discussing? Good question. I assume that the G20 finance ministers meeting will be particularly interesting. Also because, as I mentioned earlier, India is now leading the group. Emerging markets, also China, another large emerging market, have warned for some years that rapid rate increases by the US Federal Reserve, for instance, would hurt their economies and potentially threaten the stability of their economies and their ability to service debt that is obviously becoming more expensive. Uh, rising US interest rates have also really pushed up the dollar and basically constrained the central banks in fighting inflation and supporting their economies. And so the latest turmoil has actually raised the expectations that the Fed might slow its rate hiking process and perhaps even reverse it later this year. So you, you could argue there, there, is a, there is even positive, potentially positive aspect to all of this. While, of course, a U.S. recession is clearly in no one's interest, it often leads to a global recession, lower rates really provide more space for central banks in emerging markets uh, to support their economies while the growth outlook is darkening. But, of course, there are trade-offs between fighting inflation and ensuring financial stability, trade-offs that many central bankers currently need to deal with, but at a, a, to a degree that they hadn't to do this for many years. And so it's a very complicated balancing. But the Fed's and the ECB's mandates are clearly price stability and also letting inflation out of or spiral out of control would clearly hurt their economies and therefore the world economy as a result. But on the other hand, as I mentioned, severe risks due to instability in the financial sector, perhaps even a financial meltdown, would equally be, be bad for everyone. The Fed has so far continued, on the one hand, to continue its hikes, but has also provided additional liquidity to banks in order to avoid a financial tightening due to concerns about financial stability. But so, all in all, I'm quite curious to see how different or how finance ministers will actually agree on a balance between fighting inflation and ensuring that financial stability is, is guaranteed. Absolutely. That sounds like a very tricky balancing act that you're describing here between on the one side, resolving the inflation question, making sure inflation does not get out of control, that we're continuing on some of the positive trends we've seen at the beginning of the year while ensuring financial stability. But I also wanted to drill down on something else that you've mentioned. You mentioned that there could be a positive for especially emerging markets in terms of the Fed slowing down its hiking. What do you think might be discussed on the kind of growth, global growth front, especially for developing countries? Are we going to see any interesting announcements on that side? I think the growth outlook for this year is quite bleak. And if you look across many emerging markets, actually that outlook has clearly deteriorated over the last um, 18 months. Hence, more, more room to, to also loosen the monetary policy is clearly a positive. But as you rightly say, it's not all about the, the financial sector, but about the real economy. And the World Bank, just a couple of weeks ago, put out a very strong statement saying basically that we could face a decade, a lost decade of growth, where basically since the pandemic, the Ukraine war and the energy crisis, global growth will be reduced by about a third through until the end of this decade. And this would obviously have massive implications, especially for developing and emerging economies changing this outlook will also not be easy, especially in a global economy 
that is increasingly fragmented. And this leads me obviously to, to a related aspect, which is money and how the international community can agree on supporting especially developing and emerging economies. Uh, everyone is seeing at the moment how the United States and Europe, perhaps through the Inflation Reduction Act and the US Green Deal or Green Deal Industrial Plan, are pouring billions into supporting their, their industry and building out their green tech industrial capabilities. But on the other hand, um, you know, West uh, pledges by, by advanced economies to provide 100 billion uh, a year in climate finance uh, have so far not been ful fulfilled. So there is a bit of a mismatch. That's at least how developing and emerging markets are perceiving it. And that also raises the question whether the IFIs, so especially the IMF and the World Bank, actually have enough resources to support the developing world in making sure that they fully meet their growth potentials. The current World Bank president, David Molpas, won't, won't be the person to decide on this or to press this agenda. He will be out by the end of June. But um, uh, this will be, of course, a, an important uh, question also for his successor. That's a really interesting point to end on, Thomas, because I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on that. What do we know about the potential new incoming head of the World Bank? I think so. I think it's pretty clear that AJ Banga, who has been the candidate of the US government, that he will be elected in May. Um, I also think it was a conscious choice that the US administration picked an Indian American, so someone who really understands the needs of the developing and emerging world. And in addition to that, it's perhaps also a signal to India that it shouldn't leave a leadership role in the developing world to China, but actually to be more active itself. Now, Beijing has actually so far not very much commented on Banga, has said they're also open to other candidates. There's a question mark whether Russia will field one. But as I said, I think Banga is, is the clear frontrunner in this election. But the election as such will be interesting to see to what extent actually global political divisions that we are seeing are increasingly reflected within the World Bank group and as a result also perhaps impeding the world uh, the work of the five institutions that make up the World Bank group. And of course, much of the backdoor diplomacy will take place during uh, this year's spring meetings as well. Now, perhaps on a last note, I think Banga would try for the World Bank to play a larger role as such. And certainly also a larger role when it comes to, to climate issues. So I think he's quite convinced that the nexus between development and climate is a really important one. And unlike his predecessor, perhaps can't be ignored. But of course, this very quickly leads to questions about, uh, about the resources of, of the bank and about how perhaps those financial resources can, could be increased which ultimately is a very complicated political question. We will see, I guess, at the next meeting in October, what his exact agenda will be for the World Bank. For our next segment, I've got Gvida Svenskatis with me. Gvidas is a senior associate in our Central and Eastern European team, and he's been following various elections around the region. On 
Sunday, the 2nd of April, we actually have a very big day for elections in Europe. We've got a runoff presidential election in Montenegro, um, where we've got Montenegro's long-serving incumbent president um, facing off a red, um, against a relative political newcomer. We have elections in Finland, where we might see either a right-wing or a left-wing coalition emerge. We're going to see whether Sanja Marin, who's one of Europe's youngest leaders, will manage to serve another term. But what we are here to talk about today is Bulgaria, because the third election on that Sunday is in Bulgaria, and it's actually the fifth parliamentary election in the last two years. So Bulgaria did hold regular parliamentary elections in April 2021, and those were then followed by a failure to form a government, and they had to have early parliamentary elections again in July 2021, followed by another failure to elect a government. And so forth. The last election has now taken place in October, again there was an inability to form a government, which brings us to today. On Sunday, April the 2nd, the president has called, or for Sunday, April the 20th, sorry, I'll start this again, which brings us to today. For this Sunday, April the 2nd, the president has called another snap election. So, readers, tell me, what is happening in Bulgaria? Why do we have five elections in two years? And for those of us maybe who aren't following Bulgarian politics as closely, can you just give us a bit of a background to help us understand what's going on here? It is truly an extraordinary situation in Bulgaria, Isabella. I've been following international politics for the past 10 years, and I remember only one case which is remotely comparable to the Bulgarian. The only other democracy which held this whopping five consecutive parliamentary elections in this short space of time was Israel. And I recall at that time we were thinking that something truly unprecedented was taking place there. But Bulgaria has already matched this precedent and done this even in the shortest space of time Israel did. So we're talking about a country which is in a deep political crisis, a crisis that has been continuing for the past three years or so. And to get to the root cause of it, we would probably need to go back to 2020, 2021, or to the last year of the last regular government of Bulgaria, which served its full term. At that time, the country was led by Prime Minister Boyko Borisov, who is this extraordinary political figure. In his early years, he served as a bodyguard to the last communist leader of Bulgaria, Todor Zhivkov, but later, which was already in democratic Bulgaria, he has managed to quite miraculously reinvent himself as a pro-EU, pro-NATO politician at the center-right of Bulgarian politics. So between 2009 and 2021, he led his conservative GERB party to the three parliamentary election victories and also served three terms as prime minister. But the last year of his premiership was marked with a series of high-profile corruption scandals, which significantly tarnished his reputation. And basically, since then, the country has been largely divided into two political camps. One consists of uh, Boyko Borisov, his GER party, and several other political parties which are still willing to continue to cooperate with him. And there is this other camp which seeks a clean break for him from his tarnished legacy. The latter group, at least initially, also included Bulgaria's president, uh, Rumev Radev. And now to cut this very long and complicated story short, none of the four elections that have been held since April 2021 ended in a conclusive victory for either of the side. So next Sunday, which is the 2nd of April, will be the fifth attempt to break this political impasse. 
Okay, very interesting. So we're looking essentially at a two-camp kind of setup that we've got here. We've got um, Borisov and his girl party, and we've got the other side, which did include the president of Bulgaria, at least for a while, like you said. And so what do you think is the likelihood that this current election, the fifth attempt, is going to produce a different outcome? Do you think there's um, any chance that this is going to be the one that is going to end this political crisis that Bulgaria has been experiencing? Well, the latest poll suggests that the reformist let's continue to change Democratic Bulgaria coalition will win most of the seats in parliament. It is a political alliance which was formed just before the snap elections. It comprises two political parties, let's continue the change, and Democratic Bulgaria. And both have consistently ruled out governing with GERB. But the coalition victory is likely to be marginal, and it would need partners to form a government. And looking at the parties which are likely to get into parliament, this will almost be impossible to find. And GERB is in a close second position in the polls and potentially has more room for coalition making, but again, it won't be easy for them either. There is also an option of a minority or of a technocratic government, which would potentially garner support from a wider political spectrum. Finally, there is also this so-called nuclear option that has been increasingly advocated by some smaller political parties and some political scientists in Bulgaria. That would be to call a constitutional referendum, which would propose a switch from parliamentary to presidential republic, like, for example, in neighboring Turkey. But if I were to make a bet, I would uh, bet that the snap election won't end the political impasse and we will head to yet another parliamentary elections next autumn. All right. So you think this could be more of the same? The two coalitions seem very close in the polls. GERB might have slightly more opportunities for coalition forming, whilst the other coalition might struggle to find other partners to rule with. So it's an interesting question. Is this going to be a fifth uh, election that just sets us up for a sixth? Or might this be the fifth election that sets us up for a nuclear option? Um, Certainly really interesting. But we have talked about how unprecedented this has been. And what I'd like to get into a little bit now to finish this is how Bulgaria has essentially coped with this three-year political crisis. There's been some talk about that it has enabled, for instance, um, Russian um, influence in Bulgaria to to flourish. But I'm slightly more interested, um, because we have talked about Russia a lot on this podcast, to not make this about Russia. So I'm more interested in what implication this has had on Bulgaria itself as a country, as um, as a democracy, and for the democratic institutions in Bulgaria. Bulgaria is the poorest EU member state, and during this political impasse has not achieved its strategic targets, which are to join the Schengen area and the Eurozone in 2024. But again, given the current overall inflation uh, rate in the EU, it was hardly possible to meet the Maastricht criteria, and even if a regular government was in place. But there are some simpler things that Bulgaria has not been able to do. For example, the country is yet to adopt the budget for 2023. But not everything is doom and gloom, Isabel. For me, the political crisis has shown that Bulgaria is a functional democracy. Consecutive caretaker governments have ensured that the basic functions of the state are fulfilled. Bulgaria's economy has also showed resilience and will continue to grow in 2023. Even in these circumstances, there are business sectors that are performing exceptionally well, such as the Bulgarian uh, uh, IT sector, for example. So the ongoing political stability has... Uh, thanks very much, Guidas. I really like finishing on not doom and gloom, which again is also a bit of a feature of this podcast. So really important to point out that 
for a kind of the broader economic situation that we find um, ourselves in, if you have a country that is still showing resilience and is going to continue to grow in 2023, despite a political crisis like the one we've just described, I think that certainly means our clients and our listeners should keep their eyes on Bulgaria. For our next segment, we have Ross Nugent with us. He is an associate in the trade and manufacturing practice. And he is here today because April 10th is going to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement was really the landmark peace settlement that brought an end to 30 years of conflict in Northern Ireland, the conflict that was known as the Troubles. And to mark that occasion, we have President Biden, who's going to travel to Northern Ireland, and he's going to be accompanied by former President Bill Clinton, who was one of the architects of the peace agreement. It's also particularly interesting because that anniversary follows really hot on the heels of the Windsor framework, which was the one that brought essentially to an end one of the longest running Brexit disputes, namely the one over the Northern Ireland Protocol. And if we have those milestones in mind, we wanted to use this opportunity to reflect on where EU-UK relations stand after the Windsor framework, how the framework will impact transatlantic trade as well, and where Northern Irish politics stand after 25 years of peace. So I want to start with the first of these, EU and UK. Ross, where do you think the relationship could be deepened now that we've had the Windsor framework agreed? Well, it's crucial to understand that the Northern Ireland Protocol dispute was the primary bottleneck in the post-Brexit relationship for the past couple of years now. And very little was possible until that blockage was removed, even when alignment on Ukraine fostered some goodwill between London and other European capitals. On the UK side, the departures of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss were infection points, it seems now in hindsight. And the relationship has now reached a level of maturity not seen since before the Brexit referendum back in 2016. So the Windsor framework has unlocked several opportunities for deepening the relationship. Foremost among them is UK association with Horizon Europe, the EU's 95 billion euro scientific research programme. While the UK government backstop some of this funding in the intervening period while it's been locked out, it has not substituted the whole amount. This has major implications for life sciences and life science researchers. So the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has confirmed that the EU will progress the UK's application once the Windsor framework is implemented. Uh, but the British government has not yet confirmed that it will pursue readmittance. But I think on balance, reassociation would certainly give UK researchers and the businesses who rely on them much more certainty about their future funding streams. Other low-hanging fruit includes implementing the Memorandum of Understanding on Financial Services Regulatory Cooperation, which was agreed in 2021, but never implemented. Another will be a rumoured Memorandum of Understanding on Intellectual Property, but details of that are scarce. Any further deepening of the relationship will probably wait until the Trade and Cooperation Agreement is reviewed in 2025. That is the agreement that governs trade between the EU and UK and where a lot of businesses will be looking for a deepening of that relationship. Another key point is that the level of ambition for the relationship will change substantially under a Labour government, from the UK side at the very least. A Labour government would likely pursue mutual recognition agreements for conformity assessments, professional qualifications and professional mobility, none of which would be transformative in any way but would grease the wheels of deeper collaboration in the party's view. A Labour government would also pursue much closer regulatory alignment and lessen the prospect of active regulatory divergence favoured by the Conservative Party until very recently. But some degree of passive divergence is still likely to happen. The party has not crystallised its vision for the relationship just yet, 
but we can perhaps expect further details on this as the UK approaches its general election next year. All right, very interesting. So that really does sound that agreeing the Windsor framework did unlock this this bottleneck and we are now looking at maybe a world of opportunities where we previously looked at uh, tension more than anything. Um, I like the points on scientific research. That sounds something that companies will really be keeping an eye on. Financial services regulation, cooperation, IP. And of course, we'll see what might change if there is a change of government in the UK. But I do want to also take this opportunity to look across the Atlantic because we're going to have Biden in Northern Ireland for the anniversary. And interestingly, the Biden administration had always cited the Northern Ireland Protocol dispute as one of the reasons why they were not eager to reopen trade talks with the UK. So now that this, that, that has been broadly resolved, do you think a free trade agreement could be back on the table? It's true that the Biden administration insisted that it wouldn't reopen trade negotiations with the UK until the protocol issue was resolved. And The last round of US-UK FTA talks took place in October of 2020 in the closing months of the Trump administration, and they haven't reopened under Biden. That's all true. But it's important to say that the Windsor framework was never going to be a silver bullet for the US-UK free trade agreement. The administration's appetite for market access talks is relatively low, and that's not necessarily unique to the UK. We see this in the Indo-Pacific economic framework, where the US is leading but keeping market access off the table. While most congressional Democrats in Congress aren't opposed to a US-UK FTA in principle, and the US trade representative remains quote-unquote open-minded, Biden is unlikely to move on this between now and the next presidential election. That doesn't mean that nothing is achievable, of course. One area where we could see deepening is greater cooperation between the UK and US medicines regulators, the MHRA and FDA. The two regulators already have a mutual recognition agreement on shared manufacturing standards, as well as a successful rapid access scheme for oncology drugs. Further collaboration in this space could cover data, AI, and advanced therapies. This is obviously no substitute for a free trade agreement with the world's largest economy, but would allow the US to keep skirting the market access question while simultaneously delivering meaningful benefits for the UK life sciences sector. Before I let you go, I just want to take this back to Northern Ireland. Because we've already had the Democratic Unionist Party reject the Windsor framework and they've already been willing to collapse power sharing in opposition to the protocol last year. So do you think the DUP is willing to restore power sharing institutions that were designed 25 years ago now? Well, that's a very, very good question. I'm sure one that policymakers in Whitehall and Dublin and of course in Northern Ireland are all thinking about. We know that the DUP is unlikely to soften its position on the Windsor framework or power sharing for that matter until after local elections have taken place in May. That's the very earliest point we're going to see some softening, if it is at all possible. The party is very wary of losing votes to the traditional unionist voice, the TUV. And for context, the TUV is a more hardline party within the unionist community, where disaffected DUP voters typically migrate. And then, of course, when we move past the May local elections, we're moving into marching season, which is a very culturally significant and politically significant season in Northern Ireland, which is typically very febrile from a sectarian perspective. But looking beyond the local elections, looking beyond even marching season and perhaps into the into the autumn, we don't know what it would take to convince the DUP to restore power sharing. The reason we don't know that is because the party itself doesn't know. And of course, when speaking to the media, the party insists that scrapping the Northern Ireland protocol would suffice, but privately... They understand that's not going to happen. The Windsor framework has political buy-in from London, Brussels and Dublin. So the protocol is clearly going nowhere for the foreseeable future. We also have to understand, and this is another crucial point to underline, 
is that unionists' reluctance to restore power sharing runs deeper than the protocol. Last year's elections to the Northern Ireland Assembly returned Sinn Féin, the largest nationalist party, as the largest party in terms of seats, albeit not in votes. This entitles Sinn Féin to the office of First Minister for the very first time. And in practical terms, of course, the First Minister has no more power than the Deputy First Minister of Northern Ireland. But symbolism is really important political currency in Northern Ireland, and this has given the DUP another reason to boycott power sharing beyond the big-ticket issues of the protocol. Both of these factors have exacerbated an overall sense of insecurity within the unionist community and a sense that the past 25 years have been characterised by one concession after another to the nationalist community. That's how some unionists feel. Of course, all of this has been compounded by recent census results revealing that the Catholic population has overtaken the Protestant population in Northern Ireland. This partly reflects immigration from Eastern Europe, the majority of which is Catholic, and also, of course, doesn't directly translate into support for a united Ireland, but taken together, they all worsen unionist insecurity and anxiety. So President Biden will have an opportunity to reflect on the success of the Good Friday Agreement as a peace settlement when he arrives in Northern Ireland later this month, but the political gridlock in Northern Ireland will remain long after Air Force One leaves the island of Ireland. On this note, we are at the end of our episode. We are very clearly looking at an interesting April. We have the World Bank and IMF spring meetings taking place in a context of financial sector turmoil. We have an opening in UK and EU relations, even though we certainly can't quite say that political um, deadlock in Northern Ireland will be resolved this month. And we do have elections in Bulgaria that may very well struggle to deliver a decisive result once again. As always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we have discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find contact details for our presenters and our sectoral teams on the GC website at www global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you, Thomas, Kvitas and Ross. And thanks to you for listening. Bye-bye.